if you'll turn in your Bibles to the epistle of 1 John. Um, that's where we are. Uh, this last week, we were in 1 John chapter 2, and we're going to be in verses 12 through 14 today of 1 John chapter 2. So turn in your Bibles there. Um, as I always start my intro, every time, I, it's called, every time I'm called to preach, I always remind us, and it's always a reminder for me, that all Scripture, all Scripture is breathed out of God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It's important that we understand that. And someone asked me, they said, how come your introduction is always the same? And I said, because I always have to be reminded before we come to God's Word, we need to understand what is the purpose? Why are we in God's Word and what should we expect from his word. And um, Tom and I go way back. And I remember when I was young, and Tom was young. That was a long time ago, wasn't it, Tom? We used to have, we used to remind each other of this. We used to remind each other of this. Our problem, our problem, my problem, usually isn't understanding the word. It's applying the word. You know, we have the whole, it's whole science of hermeneutics and and, and learning uh, what the Word says. But my biggest problem isn't that. Usually the biggest problem is applying it in our lives. And so um, the teaching is important, very important. But if it stops there, it's of no value. There's the reproof that we need and the correction that we need. If you've had teenagers, shoot, if maybe even a, even a five-year-old or six-year-old, you give them instruction and they go, yeah, 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 I hear you. Right? I mean, am I am just my teenagers? You know, um, yeah, 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 I hear you. That's where, it, that's where it stops sometimes. It doesn't get to the heart. And so we want to go from the head to the heart. And the way to get there is through reproof and through correction. And then Paul says, and training in righteousness. That's just rinse and repeat, teaching, reproof, correction, teaching, reproof, correction. And what it becomes is a habit of the heart. That's what we want to do is develop a habit of the heart. So I need to be reminded of that before I preach, and I need to remind you of that. And the other thing we always have to remind ourselves from Peter is that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. There's only one proper interpretation, one proper interpretation of Scripture. It's not what do I think or how do I feel about it. It's what is God communicating through His Word. And God has communicated clearly, and He has not stuttered. And so we need to, we need to know that and be reminded of that. Um, so as we come to God's Word, if you're turned now to um, the epistle of 1 John, let's bow our heads in prayer and ask God, ask for the Holy Spirit to open our hearts to His Word so we might understand clearly what He is communicating to us. Can we do that? Can we pray? Father, You tell us in Your Word that we have received not the Spirit of this world, but the Spirit that is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. 1 Corinthians 2.12. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your Holy Spirit 
that you have promised to give to us so that we might understand your word. So give us that understanding. Help us to understand what you're communicating to us through your word. And then change us so we might go from here today different than when we came in. And we do that for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, our passage is in 1 John. As I told you, we're in chapter 2. Here's the main point. If you have, if you have the handout that we have on the back, you've got the main, the main point there um, with just really a couple of notes and a place for you to take some notes. Um, the main point is this, that you can be confident. There's a blank there for our youngest people. You can be confident of your relationship with Jesus Christ because of a daily walk that gives evidence of a life changed by the person of Jesus Christ. Before we, before we read the text, I know, I know um, maybe last week we'd read the text, and, uh, the text and I made some observations kind of in review. Let me just, before we read it, let me just make some observations for you um, to get us where we are today. John's writing to an, audi- to an audience of believers, basically of believers. However, there are some false teachers that have crept into this body, and they're making some claims that John says are just flat-out lies. That's how John, those are John's words. John's purpose in writing this gospel, I believe, is twofold. It's really to confirm to these believers who they are in Christ. They are the possessors of eternal life through Christ. We can know, John says, we can know. I write these things. He says in the end of this epistle, he reminds them, he closes, almost as he opens, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know, that you may know that you have eternal life life. Secondly, he wants to expose those false professors of faith. And he's going to draw a bright line to do that. They do not possess eternal life, and their lifestyle gives evidence of that. So what does John do? Well, in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 1, he starts his epistle by repeating the gospel of Jesus Christ. A gospel that says, you've heard from the beginning, nothing's changed. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. And he alone gives eternal life, and he alone is the source of that reconciliation between God and man. So that we might have fellowship with God and with one another. John 14, 6, Jesus says this, Jesus says this um, to Philip. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known the Father also. From now on, you do know him. That is the Father, and you have seen him. Then in in verses 6, in verses 6 through 10 of chapter 1, John draws that clear line, okay? He draws a clear line to separate those who have just a profession of faith but no lifestyle of faith and those who profess and walk the talk. And you'll notice that he says, in chapter 1, you'll notice he says, if we say. You'll see that expression, if we say. And he kind of includes himself in the whole group as he's drawing this line, if we say. And the first litmus test that John uses to identify true believers from professors is their walk. And in particular, how they deal with sin. For the false professors of faith, their sin was of no consequence. And if we apply just what we were talking about in 2 Timothy 3.16, these false professors of faith were saying, no sin, no reproof. I don't need your reproof. 
And certainly no correction is necessary in my life. John says these people are self-deceived and they're liars. And worst of all, he says they call Jesus Christ a liar. There's some pretty strong words we'll see as we read that. For the true believer walking in the light of God's truth exposes sin. That's what light does. That's the purpose of light. Therefore, confession of sin should be going hand in hand with walking in the light of God's word. After all, God's word reveals his very character, the person and being of God. God is holy. You, we don't, you remember the passage in Isaiah. Isaiah, the very mouthpiece of God, the prophets were to proclaim blessings from God and cursings from God. And when Isaiah comes before the Lord in Isaiah 6, when he sees God on his throne, he pronounces a curse upon himself. He says, woe is me, for I am ruined, he says, ruined. That's what it's like to stand in the light. He said, I am a man of unclean lips. Here's the prophet. (laughs) the mouthpiece of God. And what what does he confess? I'm a man of unclean lips. Imagine that kind of impact in our lives as we look at the truth of God's word, the light that he has revealed. How did Peter respond when Jesus was calling his disciples at the seashore and he calls Peter after, 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 after they bring in this huge haul of fish? Peter says this, he says, Depart from me. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. That's Peter's response when he stands before the very light, God himself. Yet for the, for the believer, for the true believer, sin always has a remedy. It always has a remedy in the person of Jesus Christ. By the time we get to chapter 2, um, John turns his address to true believers. This line's really been drawn. He turns to true believers and he affectionately calls them little children. And you'll notice that John moves from an if we say in chapter 1, if you're reading this, if we say, he moves from that to whoever says. So I think the line's been drawn and now he's going to add some addition to that test. He's already drawn the line and now he goes and he says, he goes from if we say, kind of including himself, got the whole group. Now he's drawing the line to, go, to say, whoever says. And he adds two more tests so that we can know, so that we can know and have the assurance of who we are in Christ. And we can also know who the false professors of faith are. And you also notice that he prefaces, when we go into chapter 2, as we're going to chapter 2, John prefaces what he says, these additional proofs, by saying, by this we know that we have come to know him. The The second proof is the obedience to God's word. John says, if your life is characterized by obedience to God's word, then that joyful obedience gives testimony to a relationship with Jesus Christ. But whoever says, I know him, that is Christ, and does not keep his commands, John says, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. As Christ walked in obedience to his Father, so too we also are to walk in the same way in which he walked in humble obedience. The third proof that John gives 
and we've already been through this. Um, this, this is where we focused last week, John, is love for one another. It's just love for the one another. It's the one another right here. It's the family of families of Community Bible Church, the, the local body. It's our love for one another. John says, if your life is characterized by a God-given love for your brother, then that love gives evidence of your relationship with Christ. And that love is not as the world defines love, but a love that finds its definition in the very person and character of God, because God is love. We said last week, that love is one way. It's a one-way love. It's unmerited, and it's unconditional. We also said that it's a sacrificial love. It costs something. Every time you love me, every time I love you as we love one another, it costs us something to love one another. We have to give up self in doing it. It's a love, though, that's empowered by Christ as I abide in him. It's a love that's modeled by Christ as we walk in the same way in which he walked. And it's a love that brings glory to Christ. For that's why he has created us. So now, with this general overview in mind, let me read our passage. Um, it's not that lengthy. Um, I just want to read it. Um, and hopefully you'll, you'll, we can kind of see, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that, this is what we are learning in our study of this. So we're going to start in, in verse 1 of chapter 1, and we're going to go down through 14, our, our focus uh, this morning is 12 through 14 in chapter 2. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we've seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that, you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you, that God is light. And in Him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That by, and, and by this, we may know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. 
At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him that is in Christ and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness. And whoever does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And now our text, I think John shifts to some words of encouragement. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. John lets his readers know that we can differentiate between those who know God, that is, walk in fellowship with God, and those who do not know God, regardless of their profession. Jesus said, each tree is known by its own fruit. And John says, we can tell. By this we know, John says, that we have come to know him. How? How do we know? By our walk. Confession of sin, we've talked about that. Should I be asking ourselves, is confession of sin a daily part of my life? Ask your wife, husbands. Ask your husbands, wives. Ask your children, dads. Is confession part of my life? Obedience to the commands of Christ. Do I walk in obedience to the word of God? Do I find pleasure? Do I just find pleasure in living in obedience to God's word? And love, love for each other within the household of God. Do I love my brothers and sisters in Christ in the same way which God has loved me? John says that a profession of faith is not sufficient. You can't just say the words. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him that is Christ a liar and his word is not in us. Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. These are strong words from John. And they should bring us to honest reflection, asking, which camp do I belong in? Am I deceiving myself in lying to others? Do I come to church to make a profession of faith It's not real in my daily life. Do I walk in the light of God's word or do I kind of avoid that light? Do I claim to know Christ and yet live a life in pursuit of self and glorification of self? Does my exposure to the word of God bring about a conviction of sin? Conviction that leads to confession and a desire to be changed by God's word? Do I desire to know God through the study of his word? Or am I content just to kind of go without? 
Do I twist the scripture in a way that justifies my own actions and my own lifestyle and make me feel good about myself? Do I know the difference? Do I know the difference between walking in the light and walking in the darkness? Well, these are honest questions that any professor of faith should be asking themselves. And yet John's intent is not to leave his audience in perpetual doubt. In fact, he doesn't want to leave them in any doubt whatsoever. The difference between those who walk in the light and those who walk in darkness should be most evident in our relationship with one another. Remember, we cannot separate fellowship with God from our fellowship with one another. And so John pauses. And I think in verses 12 through 14 to say, yeah, you are walking the talk. The evidence is visible. John gives these words of encouragement to little children. He's speaking affectionately to this body of believers, to little children. He then addresses fathers and then young men. I'm writing to you, little children, verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Paul's address to little children is addressed to these believers as a whole, individually, but as corporately as a, as a body. Therefore, his address is to these fellowship, the fellowship of these true believers. Remember, in chapter 1, verse 3, John says, so that you may have fellowship with us. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. You know, we can add, we can just add this. And those, the list you have of, of assurances of our salvation, you can add to this a fellowship of one another. That's, that's an additional, that is an additional evidence of who we are in Christ. It's a desire to be together in fellowship. Too often we think of the saving grace of God simply in terms of what we're saved from. From the holy and just wrath of God. However, God's purpose in saving us is not so that we can just go our, about our own business. It's not the hell fire life insurance, or insurance policy that we've got, okay, I got that covered. Now I can just go live however I want to live. That's not what we've been called to. We've not been just called from God's wrath. We've been called to the fellowship of, of the body so that we can declare his glory. That's what God made us from the very beginning. In Genesis, God says, let us make man in our image. There is a perfect fellowship and harmony within the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, and the God the Holy Spirit. And we, we have been created, man has been created to do that, just that, reflect his image. But you, plural, Peter says, you are a royal Race, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of, for God's own possessions, that you may proclaim the excellences of excellent, excellent, I can't say it, somebody say it. Thank you. Excellencies, that it helped. There was a complete brain, brain block there of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you, again, still plural, you are God's people once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This plurality of believers is what we call the body of Christ. 
And what an amazing encouragement John gives to these believers. Your sins are forgiven. Isn't that amazing? It's because of the atoning work of Christ on the cross that we stand before God righteous, clothed in His righteousness. The verb tense, the verb tense, are, for, are, are forgiven is a perfect tense. It's a completed action that occurred in the past, but which produced a state of being. It's who I am. And results, and the results of which exist into the present. That's the definition of, of, the, of the perfect tense. It's, it's the perfect tense. The atoning work of Christ is a completed work for those who are in Christ. That's amazing. That is amazing. You see, the amazing thing is that God has forgiven me. That's the amazing thing. God has forgiven me. And the one thing you can count on with the false, false professors of faith is they don't think much of their sin. And they're not very much amazed by the work of Christ on the cross. Where there's no recognition of sin, there's absolutely no need for the cross. No need for the cross. Now, there's two kinds of people that reject or ignore sin in their own personal lives. Really, I kind of, could kind of almost clump them into one, but let's just say there's two kinds. There's the self-righteous, right? We all, if I say, hey, you know what a self-righteous person is? We're like, oh, yeah, I know what that looks like, right? Either in our own lives or more often we think of somebody we know that, you know, is, is self-righteous. I, the self-righteous person says, I set the standard of righteousness for myself and also use that standard of righteousness to judge others. I define my own reality, says the self-righteous person. I'm my own God. No sin, no need for the atoning work of Christ on the cross. The religious man can be self-righteous as well. The self-righteous religious man expresses himself in a works theology. Right? That's a works theology. God will accept me. God, And he's, he almost sets the standard for God. He says, God, you're going to accept me based upon my works, and my efforts to earn your merit. That's, self, that's a self-righteous religious man. I'm going to set the terms upon which I am reconciled to God. This was the attitude of the scribes and Pharisees in Christ's time. As you read through the Gospels, you see that. You see that. There's another kind of person, and that is what I call the victim. The victim. Now, I already, I already referenced this a few, maybe it's been a month ago, but we were talking about Adam. What did Adam say after he sinned? It's that wife you gave me. That wife you gave me. It started, this, I'll call it victim mentality, started in the garden. And boy, is it, if it's not perpetuated in the day, in the culture in which we live today. My problem is not the sin in my own heart, the victim says, but it's in the evil of others around me. My problem is outside of myself, is what the victim says. I'm a victim of my past. I'm a victim of other people in my life. I'm a victim of you fill in the blank. Their life story is not about God's forgiveness of their sin inside. Their story is about the evil of others outside of them. That's their story. And let me tell you what, if you turn on the TV, that's exactly what the politicians are peddling on both sides. Right? 
Everybody's a victim. And who's the savior? Government. What you need is more. This is what the politicians are saying. Everyone's a victim, and I'm going to save you, right? That's the victim mentality that permeates our culture. It started in the garden, and we have to make sure it doesn't creep in to our mindset. In fact, let me give you a test. Let me give you a test. A test that I give myself, okay? This, this is the test I give myself. If someone sins against me, and I say, that's unforgivable. Unforg- I can't, I, I, I just can't, I can't deal with it. I can't forget. You know what I'm saying? I'm saying that my sin against God, my sin against God is less than that person's sin against me. Because God's forgiven me, I'll tell you, but I'm not going to forgive them. What? You think, I think, whoever thinks that thought thinks very little of God and very much of themselves. Now, you know this. You know this is true. And you know we get hurt by people who hurt us. But as believers, our story is, God has forgiven me of my sin. I can forgive you. I see this in Facebook all the time now. I see people who make posts declaring their efforts to get rid of toxic people in their lives. You see it? I mean, right? I see some nods. Okay, I see some Facebook nods. People are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I say, I'm getting rid of these toxic people in my life. Really? You're not going to just go share the gospel of Jesus Christ because you're worse than they are. Paul said, I'm the worst of sinners. You're just going to get rid of toxic people in your life. To be sure, at the second coming of Christ... He's going to judge all evil, and he's going to judge all evildoers. All will give an account. Let me assure you of that. But at his first coming, Jesus came to save me from myself, from my sin. The angel told Joseph, but as he, that is Joseph, was considering these things, the woman he was betrothed to is pregnant. He says he was considering... I can't wrap my mind around that. As he was considering those things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. Listen, for he will save his people from their sins. Not from Rome. He will save his people. Their sins. And so, for the true follower of Jesus Christ, this is our story. Our story is my sins, our sins, our sins as believers in Christ are forgiven. And the more clearly I see my sin, the more, un- the more I understand my despicable depravity before a just and a holy God, the more glorious God's grace and forgiveness is for me. In my life. And that's the glorious truth that John uses to affirm the faith of these believers. Your sins are forgiven. The gospel's not God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's a man-centered gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that while we were yet sinners, God-haters, and self-lovers, while we were still enemies of God, Christ died for our sins, Romans 5.8. That's our testimony. 
That should be my testimony. And then God, and then John adds another glorious element to that. He says, he says this, for his name's sake, your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Now, if you're, if, uh, for our grade school kids, for the grade school kids that are um, in the class that um, Kim and I teach on Wednesday, so there's 20 of them. So maybe there must be 20. Uh, I can see, I, I'm seeing their faces, I'm looking at them. I'm, 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 I'm seeing their faces. Um, as we're going into a walk through the Old Testament, um, first we want to grab, get our arms around the big picture, okay? And so we've been talking about the big picture. What is the big picture from Genesis to Revelations? Um, let's see. Say it, guys. In one word, okay, if you're in our class, in one word, say it out loud, really loud. What's the big picture? What's the, what's the one word big picture? Reconciliation. Amen. That is it. And this reconciliation is accomplished through one person, and that person is the, is the person of Jesus Christ. And so our class, we've been memorizing kind of this summary statement as we look at the Bible and we say, hey, what's a good summary statement? And we have a summary passage for that too. But what's a good summary statement? Here's the summary statement. All right, class, do this. Fill in the blank for me. God has chosen to bring glory to himself by, by reconciling man to himself through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the story. That's the story from Genesis to Revelation. It's about reconciliation. It's through the person of Christ. It's through his life, death, and his resurrection. And our, our passage, our passage from that is 1 Peter 3.18. They memorized this. It was one of the GC songs that we sang. For Christ died for sins. Once for all the righteous, there's the righteous life of Christ, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. There's the reconciliation. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. Reconciliation, the life of Christ, the sinless life of Christ. His physical death on the cross is an atonement for my sins, and his physical resurrection from the dead. And this story, this story that we're learning, that we're walking through, is in, found in 66 books of the Bible. The story of reconciliation takes place in real time. It is a historical narrative. It takes place, involves real people, and the story of reconciliation is, takes place in real places. And again, the central figure is the person of Jesus Christ. So, the big picture, man is reconciled by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed in his word alone, and all for his glory, for his glory alone. Therefore, John encourages these believers, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I don't, my time is running out. I don't have time to read. Just make a note, Ephesians 5. What a passage that is. I hate not even reading that. Um, but we are saved. Um, I mean, Paul says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, he, he, he saved us so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. It's all about him. It's all about his glory. And what an incredible truth that is. Our sins have been forgiven for the glory of of Jesus Christ. The psalmist says it this way. 
Psalm 106, both we and our fathers have sinned. The psalmist, what's he doing? He's recognizing sin. We've sinned. We've committed iniquity. We've done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea, at the, at the Red Sea. Yet, hear this, yet, he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. Ezekiel says this in Ezekiel 36. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you profaned among them. And the, and the nations will know that I am the Lord, <coughs> declares the Lord God. And through you, I will vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Isaiah 43. Thank you, guys. Isaiah 43. I, I am he. Speaking, the mouthpiece of God, speaking for God. God says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my sake. And I will remember, and I will remember your sins no more. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. When we share the gospel of Jesus Christ, we tend, to put, we tend to put salvation in the context of what God has done for us. And certainly we are recipients of his grace. That's an amazing thing. But if we stop there, we make it a man-centered gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is all about his glory. That's what the gospel is about. I am, an, I am an undeserving beneficiary. God has chosen to bring glory to himself by reconciling me to himself through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Isn't that an amazing thing? I don't even deserve it. I think, why me? Why me? I'm just a beneficiary of God bringing glory to himself. And something that I can't completely understand, he has chosen me to do that. That should bring us to tears. That should also bring us to go, hallelujah to our Lord. John says, I'm writing to you, little children, because you know the Father. He says this, because you know the Father. John says that with confidence you can know the Father. Philip, speaking with Christ, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, that's to Philip, I've been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And so John, his epistle says, you know him. We know the Father because we know the Son. Amen. Verse 13, John addresses a second group. <clears throat> I'm watching my time here. John dresses a second group in this body, um, and the word is translated fathers. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who's from the beginning. And John repeats this, this same refrain again in 14. He says, I write to you fathers because you know him who's from the beginning. 
Because John also addresses another group later that he says young men, it's reasonable to conclude that these men who John, who John, who John, who John identifies as fathers are older men, not the same as the younger men. The fathers have the God, and fathers have a God-given role and responsibility of being leaders and teachers in their home. This is the God-ordained role assigned to each father since the Garden of Eden. And the address to fathers is not at the exclusion of the others within the household. It's to the benefit of to those who are in that house. I believe the key to understanding John's address is how he addresses them. He says to the fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Christ says this to his disciples in John 15. He says, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I believe John is emphasizing the faithfulness of these fathers who have lived many years walking in the light. They've walked the talk. You know, time and trials have a way of exposing fakes. Just watch. Just watch. I always told my kids when, before they were dating, I said, if you're interested in somebody, don't let them know. Watch them when they don't know you're interested in watching, right? Time, time and trials, time and trials will have a way of exposing fakes. And these men are no fakes. They have the real thing. And their responsibility is to preserve the truth and to pass it on. The father is the shepherd of his household. And I think John is addressing these fathers, one shepherd to another. John writes this epistle with the love and affection and says, stay true, stay true to what you have been taught. 2 Timothy 1, 13, Paul, as an older man, now addresses a younger man, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me, Paul says, the older man, in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. 2 Timothy 2, um, Paul, again, to Timothy, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me, that is Paul speaking, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Titus 2, Paul, again, speaking to Titus, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, Sound in love and in steadfastness, faithfulness. I believe John is encouraging these fathers who have remained true to the person and teaching of Jesus Christ. And even though false teachers have crept into this community of believers, John recognizes that these fathers, who he identifies as fathers, have remained faithful to those teachings. As an elder here at CBC, let me say John's words apply to the fathers here within this church family. I'm saying they do. I feel like John, I like I look, I look at the families, I look at the men. I, I know we're just a small body, but I look at the men here and I see that faithfulness. And I'm 
so encouraged by it, and you should be encouraged by it. In fact, let me say this to you. When you see it, go say something to that older man. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying this because I'm, 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 I'm looking at the older men here, okay? I'm looking at them, and I'm saying, I know you feel it. Go say something to them. Encourage them. That's what John's doing. He's encouraging them, saying, thank you for your faithfulness. In my mind, one of the greatest qualities an older man can put on display for the glory of God is just that, is faithfulness. This is, the, this is one of these character qualities that requires time. Lots of time. And it proves itself out through trials, through trials. And being true to that which is from the beginning is necessary for the health of our individual families, but it's also necessary for the health of this whole family. I mean, kind of witnessed that as we were ordaining Brian and encouraging him and really one another in that same And so John, in his deep love for these believers, the love that a godly father has for his children gives encouragement to the fathers within this community of believers. Their relationship with Christ, their walk, produces a fruit that is evident for all to see. You know him, John says, you know. And they're faithful in the unchanging person and teachings of Jesus Christ, that which is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Finally, John addresses a third group, which he identifies as young men. Well, I could preach a whole sermon just on that, um, but I get like three minutes to get through that. So let me say this. He says several things about the young. I mean, he really says a lot about the young men. He says, I write to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. That, and that overcome the evil one, that's, that's in, in the perfect tense as well, is something that has already been completed. It's the work of Christ, right? But the benefits of which exist into the present, right? It's the state of being. They are overcomers. As believers in Christ, we are overcomers. And he says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong. That's in, that's in, the, that's in, that's in the present tense. This is an ongoing process. You are strong. This is ongoing. And the word of God abides in you. It's in the present tense. This is ongoing. <clears throat> and you've overcome the evil. And it switches back to the perfect tense. Basically, because you are an overcomer in Christ. These young men who John describes as overcomers, that are, they're being trained and strengthened in the everyday battles, in the everyday battles that are being fought in the invisible war between light and darkness. And so John says, you are overcomers. And you are fighting the fight. You are strong. You're in the process. And the word of God abides in you because that's how you fight the fight. John says this really of all believers. He says the same thing in in chapter 5. He says, for everyone who has been born of God has overcome the world. We're all overcomers. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith, our faith in the person of Jesus Christ. Who is that? Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes in the person of Jesus Christ? And yet our position as overcomers does not mean that the battle is over. It means that the outcome of the battle has already been determined because of who we are in Christ. And yet the war wages on. And that's just what I would say to our young men. I, young men ask me, "Hey, you know, what do you, you know, you know, I'm so, you know, what, 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 
what frightens you the most? I'll tell you, I, I'll tell you this. I tell them what frightens me the most is, I, is just the attacks of the enemy. Because I tell young men, I say, God can attack you. I mean, Satan, I'm sorry, Satan can attack you. And the collateral damage is very little. He's going to wait until you're married. No, he's going to wait until you have children. No, he's going to wait until you have 18 grandchildren. And then if he takes you down, think of the collateral damage that can take. We wait till you're an elder. I, what, we should be, what we should have put on Brian's back was a bullseye. Because sometimes I feel like that's what we wear. But greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. But we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And, and having done all, to stand firm. Let me say this to our young men. The worst thing you can do, and, and, and I, this is for all of us, this is for all of us, is to believe there is no enemy. You know what stealth is? Stealth is what we all, what every nation seeks to gain in, in, in its national defense. The ability to go in unknown, unseen, that's stealth. And the worst kind of stealth is the enemy who says, I don't have any enemies. Everything's just fine here. What a terrible place to be. We need to be on our guard. The enemy, if you are married here, the enemy wants nothing more than to destroy your marriage. I'll tell you that. If you're married and have your children, the enemy wants even more so, more so to destroy your marriage. Be on guard, young man. Be on guard. The psalmist says this, How can a man, young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as I delight in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. <coughs> I will not. I will not forget your word. Blessed or because... John says in our epistle, because you are strong and the word abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. You are an overcomer, therefore stand firm. Fight the good fight of faith. And also let me say this to you, and you guys, you young men have heard me say this, don't try to do it alone. That's the other tactic of the enemy is to isolate you. Oh, my problems are big. I, man, I don't, want to, I don't want anybody to know. I, I, I mean, I can battle this. I can do this by myself. I can do this by myself. There's a great book that Stu Weber wrote called Locking Arms. And it's about men of God coming together, locking arms, and helping one another. We go into the foxhole. You do not want to go in alone. 
you want to go together. And as for you, Paul says to Timothy, O man of God, flee these things, that is worldly pursuits. 1 Timothy 6. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. <laughs> fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Let me conclude by asking this. Can we know that we know him, that we know Jesus Christ? John says, yes, yes, we can know by the evidence of our daily walk with Christ and with, I'll leave this out, one another, because our fellowship is not with God, with one another. And what is your story? Let me ask you this. What is your story? What is your testimony? What is your story? Well, I hope you can say with me, my story is plain and simple. This is, this is my story. God has forgiven me of my sins. That's my story. God has forgiven me of my sins. For his name's sake. For his glory. Your sins are forgiven. For his name's sake. You know him because you have been born of God. You are a child of God. Born again, regenerated by the grace of God alone. Through the vehicle of faith alone. It's not by works. In the person of Christ alone, and all for the glory of God alone. The hymn writer puts it this way. If you're a young person, you may not get this. But if, you're, if you know this hymn, the old hymn, Blessed Assurance, Jesus Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior. Oh, the day long. Amen.